one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. It reminds us of all that once was good. And the only church that truly feeds the soul day in, day out is the Church of Baseball. White Sox Weekly, presented by Miller Lite. The official weekly talk show covering all things White Sox baseball. The latest news and views from players, coaches, and direct from the front office. White Sox Weekly, on the proud new home for Chicago White Sox baseball. WLS. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly. My name is Dave Zaslowski, normally the executive producer of White Sox Baseball. This week, filling in for Connor McKnight. Connor taking the weekend off, enjoying some time with his family, and uh, probably still laid out on the couch today from too much turkey. However, we will be dragging Connor off of his couch a little bit later on in the show to uh, talk about a few things White Sox. In the meantime, in today's show, we're going to take a look back at some of the interviews that Connor has had a chance to do over the last few months. We'll hear from White Sox manager Rick Renteria. We'll hear from one of the Zacks, that's right, the White Sox, two first-round picks this season, both named Zach. We'll hear from Zach Collins, who is a catcher and more than likely catcher of the future for the White Sox. And we'll also listen in Chuck Swirsky, our very own Chuck Swirsky, the voice of the Chicago Bulls, had a chance to sit down with Jerry Reinsdorf, the chairman of the board of the Chicago White Sox and the Chicago Bulls. And we'll hear Mr. Reinsdorf's story on how he purchase the White Sox, and we might even hear who his favorite White Sox team was. But first, let's get started. The day after he was named White Sox manager, Rick Renteria had the opening press conference, and Connor McKnight got to sit down with the brand new White Sox skipper. Ricky, congratulations on becoming the uh, 40th manager of the White Sox. I know this is uh, a job that you've had before, and I'm sure you're anxious to get back into the managerial job. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, looking forward to it. It's a little bittersweet, as we, we mentioned before, you know, because uh, Robin and I think have become good friends, and uh, so hopefully I can transition and, and uh, make him proud as everyone else. You're in an interesting position in that you know you have a familiarity with this team. There are a lot of new managers that come in and have to work with, you know, just what everybody else has told them. How do you think that you know equips you for this specific clubhouse? And do you think there are any drawbacks to that? There are no drawbacks to that. I think mo- mostly advantages. Uh, you get to know the personalities of the individuals. Obviously, uh, from a manager's perspective. Um, you have a little bit more of a uh, of an impact in terms of uh, you know d- demands and things of that nature. Uh, we all have had uh, high expectations. Uh, I don't go into this season with any anything less than than high expectations for anyone who is in that clubhouse. But I think uh, those guys have gotten to know me, and through some of the work that everybody has done uh, through the year, uh, I think they understand kind of where I'm coming from, and uh, you know my intensity might be uh, a little more. <laughs> more uh, visible uh, moving forward, but uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity. I had a chance uh, during spring training, I I happened to walk by the backfield and saw you working uh, cutoff plays after, during a spring training game, one had been missed. I think it was a catcher and a third baseman kind of thing. Is that kind of um, immediacy important to you as far as when the teaching aspect of the job comes into play? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what what we'll try to do is and everybody's a little different, but I think when... uh, when you're putting together a, a working plan on a daily basis, you end up setting up fundamentals, you know, as everybody knows. But if you have a game that, that has uh, 
some effect on how you've uh, failed to execute a certain action, mm-hmm. you might change your schedule to incorporate on those that, that following day um, that thing that just happened to not go well the day before. Uh, but I think those are all teaching moments. I think those are things that, uh, as the spring moves forward, we'll address uh, before we even get back out onto the field. Hopefully we'll be able to show some video and have guys see some things, uh, how we would like it executed, or or even show how it wasn't executed to give them more of a bird's eye view, and uh, that'll help us continue to move forward in the process. But, you know, I think uh, in the end, um, all these guys are going to want to go out there and and perform. Nobody wants to go out there and fall on their face. They want to do well. So. I know this club had expectations coming into the past season, and you having been here obviously experienced the highs and the lows. In your opinion, what needs to change, whether it's in the clubhouse or with coaches or in the, you know, what needs to change for the 2017 White Sox to kind of reach those expectations? Well, you know, we had a couple of things kind of kind of happen, and that had more to do with uh, guys on the field. You know, we had some health issues. Uh, we we have to be able to execute better in the in the relief core. Uh, obviously, we have some some very good starters. You know. Uh, with, uh, with the, uh, Quintana and, and uh, Sailor and, and uh, Radon and Gonzalez. And, and obviously Shields has a history of performing well. I know it didn't go as well for him as he had wanted, but uh, we have a starting rotation that's pretty solid. Hopefully the relief core can continue to, to, to move forward, especially in the middle, you know, because we do have a, a nice, uh, couple of nice arms in Jones and Robertson. Um, um, we had some injuries, you know, we lost Jax early in center field, and then, uh, you know, we lost Laurie about two months ago, but uh, I think that we've had a couple of guys that have kind of surfaced, and, and Laurie Garcia and, and Sanchez at second, that have shown the ability to do some things. Um, at least they give us a little bit more depth, hopefully. Uh, Saladino had done a very nice job this year also. So we've had, you know, some premier guys. You had... Uh, Frazier at 40, you had Vito at 25 and drove in 100. I mean, so you've had some some bits and pieces that, that came together. Um, it just didn't all come together um, consistently enough over the extended period of time that we needed to, to have it done. Uh, those are things that we'll have to uh, deal with. Um, every club, and as I've mentioned to many people on the phone, every year is different. You know, sometimes you're able to overcome it a little better than others, uh, but we'll do the best we can on a daily basis to see if we can just kind of push forward. You received a lot of praise from the prior front office you worked with, the, uh, the Cubs, in your ability to develop young players. Starling Castro said a lot of great things about your work with him in your years manager there. Tim Anderson is a guy who looks a lot like a pretty stellar young player. You know, what do you see from him, and what do you see are the next steps that he needs to take to you know, improve his career? You know, uh, everybody's doing a great job with him. Joey's done a great job with him. The, the minor league uh, development staff has done a great job with him because we saw him in the spring, and he's done it's leaps and bounds uh, defensively and offensively. I know he's uh, working on developing a, a much more uh, uh, a better eye, so to speak, uh, more selective eye, but he's a guy that swings the bat, and when he puts the barrel on the ball, he does some damage. So I don't think we're too worried about him in that regard. I think over time, what's going to end up happening is a guy that puts the bat on the ball and does it with, with the impact that he does. Guys are going to start working around him a little bit, and I think that'll end up ultimately driving walks up uh, as a byproduct, you know, not necessarily just taking pitches for the sake of taking pitches. Uh, so um, I think that uh, TA is going to be. We hope someone that continues to develop and, and, and be a, a great asset to the organization. But like I said, uh, Joey McEwen, the development staff throughout the organization, has done a great job with him. And uh, I think it's, it's kind of showing its fruits right now.
In uh, Rick Hahn's conversations uh, with the media in the last month of the season, uh, the, the phrase everything's on the table has been uh, mentioned a number of times. I, I'm sure that you and he have talked about the direction of this club and exactly what the possibilities are for an offseason. Uh, what are your responsibilities as you see them when you come into an offseason like this, and how will you take uh, you know each and every step throughout the winter? I think for me it's just, you know, probably answering questions, how I view a player, how I view us moving forward. It's not for me to tie the front office's hands into what other directions they're going to go into. My job is, as I mentioned earlier, is whatever type of club we have, that's the club I have to manage. So if it's a, if it's a veteran club poised to go ahead and try to make an impact now, that's who it will be. If it ends up being a, a, a club that's younger and uh, has to continue to develop, so be it. You know, the, the reality is you're still expecting both of them to try to do well. Um, in terms of the, of a, if it were a youthful club, it's a club that's continue to develop and, and give you some some length in terms of time and being able to perform uh, and get you hopefully to postseason on a consistent basis. But it's the same thing even with the veteran club. You're hoping that that club's put together to put you into position to get into the postseason. So in either case, you're still striving to do the same thing. Ricky, really appreciate you sitting down. Congratulations, and uh, we'll see you in spring. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That is our very own Connor McKnight with White Sox brand new skipper Rick Renteria shedding a little light on uh, how Rick plans on managing this ball club and his thoughts overall on getting back into the managerial ranks. My name is Dave Zaslowski. Are you out running around doing some shopping? Well, here are some cool things that the White Sox are offering on this Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Oh, yeah, today's Saturday. You're still shopping weekend. You can give the gift of White Sox baseball this holiday season. White Sox holiday packs include ticket vouchers redeemable for 71 great games in 2017 and start at just $40. Each order is shipped with a decorative card and a commemorative White Sox ornament. All orders placed now through Cyber Monday will receive two bonus ticket vouchers so you can keep those for yourself or make your gift even greater. Visit WhiteSox.com slash holiday packs for more information or to order yours today. Up next, Connor sits down with Zach Collins, catcher of the future. This is White Sox Weekly on WLS AM 890. This is White Sox Weekly. My name is Dave Zaslowski filling in for Connor McKnight this weekend, and it is the biggest shopping weekend every year. You've got Black Friday, Cyber Monday, it's all running together. And if you're looking for something to get a loved one or maybe you would just like to buy something for yourself, you can join Chicago White Sox Charities for the Holiday Garage Sale. That's coming up Saturday, December 3rd at Guaranteed Rate Field. Take home a piece of White Sox history, including game-used equipment, jerseys, hats, and much more. Entrance to the garage sale is absolutely free. For more information, visit WhiteSoxCharities.org. Now, earlier this year, during the baseball draft, the White Sox had two first-round picks. They took two guys named Zach. They took pitcher Zach Birdie, and they also took catcher Zach Collins. A couple weeks ago, Connor caught up with Zach Collins out in Arizona and wanted to know how things have been going so far in the Arizona Fall League. Yeah, it's been uh, great. I mean, this is kind of the best way to end it and go into the offseason, uh, being able to play with these guys and 
uh, learn a lot from them and uh, kind of hang around the best talent in the minor league, in minor league baseball. What what has the process been like for you in the last couple of weeks here in the fall league? I know the focus has so much been on you know establishing what that learning curve looks like for you behind the plate, and there's so much work that a catcher has to do. How much more comfortable are you getting? What have you learned about yourself when you're wearing the gear, and uh, what have you learned about uh, seeing other pitchers? Uh, well, I feel a lot more comfortable back there just catching these um, older guys who have a lot of experience and have some good stuff, but um, I think I've learned a lot here from uh, how to deal with pitchers and how to when you should be going out for a mound visit. Uh, I don't know, just kind of building a relationship with them. Uh, it's been great for me because we have two other great catchers on this team that I'm learning a lot from, and um, it's also great because we're at the White Sox facility, so I get to uh, get some extra work with John Orton, our catching coordinator, and um, I don't know, I've been learning a lot. Do you, you, you know, you talk about going out to talk to pitchers and stuff. Do you find that that can be, you know, depending on the guy you're going to have to talk to, a little bit of a delicate situation, or is it all kind of situation dependent? Uh, it's situation dependent, but um, it's kind of tough here because you're playing with guys for one month, and yeah. they're all from different organizations, so you can't really, um, I guess, get a feel for them so quick, and you, you it's hard to jump on somebody that, um, has kind of proven himself in, in minor league baseball, and um, you've just met. So um, it's it's mostly just trying to relax them here and um, throwing strikes and getting out. So that's the biggest thing. Real quickly, I, I noticed at a game last night that um, the fall league plays with the minor league rules for as far as uh, pitch timing. You know, 15 seconds to get in and out of the box, and 35 for the next batter. All that stuff. Have you noticed a difference? You know, being behind the plate like that, I would imagine you're. You're in the squat a little less, or, or has that never really been something you've uh, seen a difference in? Um, actually, I mean, it's a little bit faster, but um, to me, I always try to keep the tempo up and, sure. and uh, keep the pitcher throwing, and uh, it kind of gets everybody into the game, and uh, the defense plays better behind you, and uh, it's proven to, to help a lot. So um, it's good that they have it to enforce it to, to the guys who like to move a little bit slower and yeah. stuff like that, but um, I think it's been great. No, I, mean, I remember kids in high school, and I was a little older than you, but kids in high school used to do the Nomar thing with the batting gloves and take like seven or eight minutes just to get everything set. I mean, that's at some point that gets a little tiresome to watch. Right, yeah. I mean, they have a bunch of rules where you have to stay in the box if you didn't swing, stuff like that, which is, um, to me is great because not only does it keep the pitcher moving, it keeps the catcher moving, it keeps the game moving, everything goes so much smoother, so um, it's good. Going from Miami to the minor leagues and getting into this into the White Sox system, um, over the last couple of years, we've seen that you know pitch framing and all this focus on defensively a catcher has been such a huge, huge part of building teams, building winners. What have you learned? Is, is there something that uh, kind of turned a light on, I guess, or, or something you didn't think you knew or didn't think you didn't know about catching in general coming from college to, uh, to, to the White Sox minor league systems? Yeah, I think college uh, is a lot about stopping the run game, and I feel like here it's, it's a a lot, like you said, about receiving and getting strikes because the umpires are definitely a lot better. Yeah. And guys are more around the zone. You can live on the edge of the zone. So um, that's that's really a big thing I think that a lot of teams are looking at now is how many strikes can you get as a catcher and how many runs can you save. So um, I think that the, the whole holding runners on thing is not only the catcher but the pitcher. So it's kind of like you, you have to be an organization that, that holds runners on, I guess. And... Um, it's a lot of guys that steal bags are, are mostly off the pitcher. So um, to us as catchers, yeah, it's great to, to throw a lot of a lot of guys out, but um, getting more strikes is, is probably more important because 
that changes the game, I think, a lot more. Yeah, and if, if you and a pitcher are working well together in the first place, you can pretty much dissuade a guy from going. I mean, unless he's Billy Hamilton or something out there, you can slow that game down by just, you know, holding or varying times, right? Right, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you stay 1-3 or lower as a pitcher to the plate and you pick off once in a while, it's kind of tough for, for guys to steal. And, I mean, yeah, there are those guys like Billy Hamilton and guys that steal a lot of bags, but... Um, there's only so much you can do to stop them. Yeah. I mean, at that point, when you're behind the dish and you know a guy's going to go, whether it's you know Billy or somebody else who's really fast, is that just you know you just know you got to be on your game. You're going to throw at some point in this at bat to so make it a good one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but then you don't really want the pitcher thinking about them too much because then they forget about the hitter and That's then true. then they end up stealing the bag and then you walk the guy because you're down on him three now. So I mean, I think worrying about the hitter is is probably a bigger thing than than uh, guys running on you. It's complicated stuff back there. Yeah, I mean, you can see, I mean, John Lester can't even throw to first, and and still, I mean, he still happens to, to be one of the top premier pitchers in the big leagues, and um, I mean, it goes to show you getting ahead, get ahead, getting ahead of guys and, and getting ground balls and flyouts is, is the way to do it. I think one of the things that uh, has, has struck a lot of White Sox fans after the uh, Sox took you with the 10th pick overall is your control of the plate when you're, uh, when you're hitting uh, the knowledge of the strike zone and, and a pretty seemingly always high on base percentage. Did you grow up knowing that you could do exactly what you wanted with a baseball when it was in the right spot, or how did your uh, plate discipline, I guess, kind of develop as a hitter? Well, my dad always threw BP to me, and he always kind of—he never just threw it right down the middle. I guess he just wanted to make it hard on me, but it's definitely helped me out and, and uh, being able to recognize the strike zone and also being a catcher. I mean, um, you kind of get to get a get a feel of the umpire strike zone, whether he's calling a ball high, low, outside, inside, whatever. But um, I don't know—it's just something that I'm really good at, and my job is to kind of get on base and, and drive runners in. So. If I do one or the other when I'm up to bat, it's successful. How much have you looked at, uh, I mean, are you, are you a stats guy? Did you grow up as, you know, I'm kind of interested in, um, you know, as the younger players kind of fill in or, or come in, they've been to websites like Baseball Prospectus or Fangraphs or something like that. Some have, some haven't. Has that has that been part of growing up with baseball for you? Actually, I haven't. Um, I just always kind of knew that home runs, RBIs, and on-base percentages. Those are winners. Yeah. yeah. Those yeah. work well. Keep those up in there, and you'll be good. So that's what I always kind of look at. Mash dingers and take your walks. Yeah. It's probably not a bad diet. Yeah. Uh, last one for you before we let you go. One week left of, uh, of spring or of, uh, spring training, of Arizona Fall League ball, and the uh, the diet for you has been a little sparse, you know, one or two games, but that's all been planned. Is there a part of you that, that would want to go play a little bit more baseball to see what your results are like against these guys? Or, you know, is, is understanding what the... The um, prescription is here pretty well taken in hand for you. Uh, I think there's positives in both. I mean, obviously I would like to go out there and play, but um, I think the the program that they have me doing right now is is what's going to be the best for me. So I'm doing it to my to my best ability and uh, going out there and learning something new every day. And um, I feel like I can compete with these guys anyway. So. Um, Anybody can have a good fall league or a bad fall league, so I feel like this doesn't really determine how good you are as a player. So um, going out there and learning every day in the bullpen is what's uh, been biggest for me. 
looking forward to keeping it going. Connor McKnight with White Sox number one draft pick and catcher of the future, Zach Collins. My name is Dave Zaslowski. This is White Sox Weekly. And get a load of this. Sox Fest 2017 returns January 27th through January 29th, bringing ballpark fun to the Hilton Chicago. You'll score an autograph or photo with current players, coaches, and White Sox greats. Your favorite areas are back with an interactive space to play games, win prizes, and shop for team gear. It'll be a weekend of White Sox baseball that you won't want to miss. Hotel packages are available right now. You can visit whitesox.com slash SoxFest for tickets and more information. Up for you next, our very own Chuck Swirsky, voice of the Chicago Bulls, had a chance to sit down with chairman of the board, Jerry Reinsdorf. He talks about how he acquired the White Sox, and you might be surprised when you hear which White Sox team was Mr. Reinsdorf's favorite of all time. This is White Sox Weekly, and this is WLS AM 890. This is White Sox Weekly on WLS AM 890. My name is Dave Zeslowski. In for the vacationing, Connor McKnight, and the most popular way to follow White Sox baseball, of course, is with the MLB.com at bat, the number one app for live baseball. Enjoy live look-ins, highlights, game day scores, statistics, live radio broadcasts, and more. Get MLB.com at bat on your favorite device right now. Our very own Chuck Swirsky had a chance to sit down with the chairman of the board, Jerry Reinsdorf. He talks about his favorite White Sox team and how he acquired the White Sox. Here is Chuck with Jerry Reinsdorf. So, Jerry, when, when, did, it, when did it hit you that say, you know what, I, I'm doing well in my profession. Things are going smoothly. I, I want to kind of put my foot in the water a little bit and test the the temperature for a ball club. Well, the whole thing was an accident. Uh, 1975, I answered an ad in the Wall Street Journal, a fellow named John Alavisos, who had been the general manager for Ted Turner and at that time was with the Red Sox. And Alavisos ran an ad uh, looking for limited partners to buy a team. Uh, to invest with him to buy a team. So I contacted him, and his plan was to buy the Giants and move them to Toronto. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll invest with you. But that didn't happen. Giants ended up staying in San Francisco, and Toronto got an expansion team. And then the following year, uh, he, he called me and said uh, he was going to try to buy Cleveland Indians. So I said, okay, I'm in. That didn't work out. Then another year later, he, he, uh, he tried to buy the Mets, and that didn't work out. <laughs> And, and so I'm, I'm in the shower one day, just you know, daydreaming as I often do. And the thought occurred to me, why did I want to invest in a team that didn't play where I lived? Because in those days there was no satellite coverage. Mm-hmm. I'd never get to see them play. And why did I want to be a passive investor? And a thought hit me that Bill Veck and his group had owned the White Sox for five years. And Veck was never known to be a long-term guy. He, would, he was in and out, in and out. And so through a, uh, through a friend, I contacted him, and he said, yeah, he wanted to sell. And that's how the whole thing came about. So when you, when you have the opportunity, you, you, you put a deal together, you buy the White Sox. Did you all of a sudden wake up one morning and say, what have I done? Or was this something where you said, man, this is going to be great? Well, I was very excited, uh, you know, when we made the deal. The funny thing is that um, – 
on the same day that we were approved, that Eddie Einhorn and I were approved by the American League, there was a sale approved by a group headed by, by Danny Kay to a guy named George Argeros. So Einhorn and I were approved first, and we were then allowed to sit in the room. And we're so happy. We're looking at each other. We're smiling. I remember saying, Daddy, can you believe we're in here? And then the first order of business after we got in was the approval of the sale of Mariners from Danny Kay to George Argeros. And when that was approved, Danny Kay was so happy, he was singing and dancing on the table, literally. And I turned to Eddie, I said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. We're happy to get in, and this guy's happy to get out. I mean, maybe we don't know what we're doing. And, of course, that first year, 1981, we were hit with a baseball player's strike. We lost a lot of money in 81. We lost a lot of money in 82. And I, you know, it, it, it was looking like maybe we hadn't done the right thing. Maybe, maybe we had made a mistake. But uh, things started to turn around in 84 when we uh, – won the Western Division Championship. What was the first order of business when you bought the ball club? First order of business was to call Howard Pizer and, and ask him if he would serve as a transition uh, team. You know, Reagan had just been elected president, and he, and he had a transition team. I know I had a business I was running, um, and, uh, and, and Eddie had to disengage himself from his activities in New York. We needed somebody to come in, tell us what we had. And, 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 and sort of be a transition. And Howard Pizer agreed to do that in 1981, and he never left. He's still here. So when you were in, a, in an owner's meeting, when you first bought the ball club, did you just sit back and listen, or did you roll up your sleeves because you had innovative and creative ideas? I don't think I spoke at, a, at an owner's meeting for a year. Um, you know, I, 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 I can't imagine anybody entering into a new business world thinking he knows as much as the people are in it. So I just wanted to learn. I, I, I knew I didn't know much. I knew I, I knew I thought I knew a lot about baseball, but I didn't know anything about the business of baseball. And so it had to be at least a year before I spoke up. So what owners did you gravitate to or really say, you know what, this guy has his act together? Well, of course, Bud Selig, uh, you know, uh, Edward Bennett Williams. Mm-hmm. Or Baltimore. Yeah. Baltimore. John Fetcher, Fetzer in Detroit. I'd say those three guys that uh, that got close to right away. And then Fred Wilpon in New York, because mm-hmm. we were both Brooklyn guys. Uh, and I would say, you know, most most of the owners who were in the game when I got in, I, I got friendly with very fast. They were a great bunch of guys. What was it like dealing with Charlie Finley and George Steinbrenner? Well, Finley was gone. Finley left just before I got there, and, and, and the Haas family had and uh, what about and and the president of the, the A's was was uh, Roy Eisenhardt, who was the son-in-law of Walter House, and Roy and I became extremely good friends. Uh, Steinbrenner was kind of interesting because uh, you know he was so bombastic, and uh, we had our run-ins, but we we ultimately became very very good friends. Well, like run-ins regarding players or trades or just baseball dealings. Well, we our first our first run-in was over Steve Kemp. Because uh, uh, Steve, we had traded for Steve Kemp at the end of the '81 season. He was a free agent after '82, and uh, we offered him a five-year contract at three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, I and I told George that that was it. We, we, you know, we were done at, at that. And um, the um, nobody, as far as I don't know, nobody else is bidding. And George came along and bought a, and, and offered him double what we had offered him. <laughs> and you know. So it, 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 it seemed to me that that, that was pretty that, – that was dumb. 
and, and, and it was driving the price of players up. And so uh, I had an outburst where I said something about uh, we ought to put a team in the Meadowlands and, and cut into his market. And then he, he called Eddie and I the Cats and Jammer kids and uh, uh, I forget something else. And then, uh, and, then I, and then Eddie asked me at the All-Star Game uh, party in 1983, how can you tell when George Steinbrenner's lying? And my answer was he moves his lips. And so <laughs> it was going pretty good there for a while. But somewhere along the line, we... Uh, it all changed, and we became very, very good friends. You know, the 83 All-Star Game, Jerry, will without question be one of the best All-Star Games ever. It was a who's who. You brought everyone in. It was spectacular. When you went down on the field and you saw Mays or DiMaggio and all these people, did you return to your days as a little boy and say, I can't believe I'm here? Yes. Uh, well, you know, there, there, there was a... Uh, picture taken. I think we invited every Hall of Famer, living Hall of Famer, and every five-time All-Star. And the only living Hall of Famers that didn't show were Mays and Mantle, and I think that's because Bowie wouldn't let them, because they were they had some Atlantic City gambling connections. And there was a, uh, there was a picture. They all posed for a picture. And, uh, and somebody called me and asked me to get into the picture, and I wouldn't do it because I thought I didn't belong with those guys. Mm. Uh, Eddie Einhorn did take one with them, and I since regretted it. It would have been nice to have been in that picture, but I just, I just felt I didn't belong with, with, with these heroes of my youth. You know, with George Sisler, I think was still alive, and, uh, you know, and, and all of it, it was the players that were even went before when I started following baseball. Jerry, the '83 team, um, terrific ball club, losing to Baltimore, who went on to win the World Series that year over Philadelphia. When, when the ball club lost the playoff series, how long did it take you to recover? Or did you say, you know what, I just bought the ball club a few years ago. We're on the right track. We're going to be back here uh, over the next few years. we got a window. Or give me an idea what your mindset was in, post-83. Yeah, well, well, the day after we clinched, we clinched the division on September 17, 1983. The, the next day, we had a celebration on the field, and all the players were introduced Eddie and I were introduced. And I remember standing next to Jerry Kuzman. And, and, and Kuzman said to me, enjoy the moment. They're few and far between. Uh, little did I know it would be 10 years before we'd get back to the postseason. Um, you know, 1984, we had basically the same team, but we added Tom Seaver. And, there was, you know, all we talked about all spring was who were we going to play in the playoffs. And we were, we were far too cocky. Players were far too cocky. And we didn't make it. We, 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 we didn't make it, and it took us until 1993 to get back. But that, that 83 team was, was my favorite team. It's still my favorite team. The 83 club, yeah. not 2005. No, I mean, look, winning the World Series was the best. But as far as the guys were concerned, the people on that team, they, they were the best. And plus, we were closer in age than them. I mean, you know, I was, uh, uh, in 83, I was, uh, how old was I? I don't know, four, uh, 44 years old. Um, no, 47 years old, 47 years old. And you know, so I wasn't that far away from their age, but they just were a great bunch of guys. They had a lot of fun, and they were the veterans: uh, Greg Lozinski and uh, and uh, Jerry Kuzman uh, and Lamar Hoyt, and then young players like uh, uh, Britt Burns and Ron Kittle was the Rookie of the Year. Greg Walker, they were just a great bunch of guys, and uh, they loved each other. They really did. They, they they really did enjoy each other. So that was my favorite team. Chuck Sorsky with Chairman of the Board.
Jerry Reinsdorf. Hey, sports fans, the Bull Sox Youth Academy, the official youth training facility of the Chicago Bulls and White Sox, runs year-round basketball, baseball, and fast-pitch softball sports programming for boys and girls ages 5 to 18. The Academy offers private lessons, camps, travel teams, birthday parties, field trips, and much more. Call 630-PLAYBALL or visit BullSoxAcademy.com for more information. Up next, the real host of this show, Connor McKnight, joins us. WLS AM 890. You are listening to White Sox Weekly. My name is Dave Zaslowski filling in for Connor McKnight. And if you'd like to stay up to date on all things White Sox this offseason, be sure to follow the team on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat for all things White Sox related, like Sox Fest, on sale dates, and much more. Now, I told you earlier, not going to let Connor get off the entire weekend. So uh, I did interrupt his Thanksgiving holiday to uh, have him join his own show. Connor, how are you? Hey, Dave, how are you? Happy Thanksgiving and, uh, and happy Thanksgiving to, uh, to every White Sox fan out there. Nice to hear from you and nice to talk with everybody. Well, it's certainly been an active off season if you go strictly by rumors. And, uh, you know, it started off with Rick Renteria coming in as the new manager. Now, in, in your opinion, who's on this team and who's not on this team when they report in February to spring training? Man, that's the big question, Dave. And I, I, think, I think it'll be as busy as it's been with rumors so far. I think it'll be even busier both for the White Sox and for the rest of Major League Baseball up until the next uh, couple of weeks. I think what's been interesting, too, is, is as many rumors as we've heard, there's been, um, there's, there's been even more of a, of a quashing of, of some of them, and not specifically with the White Sox, but, you know, you hear this about one guy and this about another, and then that kind of stuff quiets down almost as quickly as it came up. And I wonder, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I wonder how much of that has to do with teams uh, looking at this December 1st date where the collective bargaining agreement is set to expire and wondering if there aren't a couple of things that they that they're waiting to kind of change over in the, in a new collective bargaining agreement before they go ahead and make their moves and set their teams. And one of those things that I think might be on the table that's that's shaking some teams' off-season plans uh, in the immediate is the qualifying offer and, and whether that is going to go away from potential free agents. Whether you're going to be able to you know as a ball club sign a guy like Dexter Fowler or sign a guy like Joanna Cespedes and not have to give up a draft pick. Um, and, and while Cespedes wouldn't necessarily, you know, if you're going to go out and get Yo, you're going to go out and get him regardless of the draft pick. But a guy like Ian Desmond in last year's offseason, a guy who sat unsigned for such a long time, whose you know, production, you, know, you look back at last season, and he had such a great year. Um, you, you look back at before that, you know, it was what, is it worth it to give up a, a, a first-round pick for Ian Desmond? Is that something that a team wants to go do if you're on the borderline of contention but also still want to enrich that farm system? I, I think that's one thing that's kind of pushing the decision-making process a little bit farther down the road. For the White Sox, though, I don't know that that necessarily has come in to, to take shots as to, uh, as to their, their plan, their confidence, their level of, of what needs to happen. I think, you know, and Rick Hahn said this a while ago at the GM meetings, that the market is going to determine, determine so much of where this team can and, and needs to go. I, I know that um, I know a lot of White Sox fans are ready, uh, one way or another, to go ahead and, and make a commitment to one side of the spectrum or the other. And I think whether that's you know trading Chris Sale or 
trading Jose Quintana, trading everybody, keeping a core together and, and making a few moves here and there to put another season together where you've got such a young competitive team, uh, a competitive core, I should say. Um, you know, you can, you can go either way on that, and I think there are arguments on both sides of the ledger. But I think what's important and what a lot of people have written uh, about over the last couple of weeks, and, and some of the White Sox blogs have done this and do a really good job of it, some of, uh, some of, the, some of the beat reporters have, have explored this, this possibility as well, but that, that you have three years of control left on Chris Sale and four left on Jose Quintana. For those guys to go and being as good as they are with as much control as they have left, it's, it's almost unprecedented that they have that kind of combination of a player and service time and control time and bargain for your dollar all traded. So it's not as though waiting um, if the White Sox and do uh, push the, the rock down the road just a little bit. If they do wait um, up until this, this offseason or uh, this next offseason or even this trade deadline coming up, in June uh, of 17, it's not as though they've, they've really delayed things. Uh, if that's the, if that's the way they decide to go all that much, there is still a lot of, of work to be gathered from, uh, from either one or both of those trades. And if, uh, if both of those trades do happen, then mm-hmm. the White Sox really could change the entire face of their organization by trading two guys. Yeah, completely, completely, and I think, I think for two in two ways. You know, I mean, a guy, a, a favorite son, as as Chris Sale is, and Jose Quintana is, as talented as they are, as much attachment as I know a lot of White Sox fans have, both to both to both Chris Sale and to Jose Quintana, it's, it would obviously be tough to to have to say goodbye to those guys. To say nothing of the way that that front office feels about both players, they are both absolutely beloved, and for for obvious reasons. Um, that said. You know, you look around potential trades and, and things that have been written up about both of these guys and potentials, and just trying to, you know, so much, so much of the fun in this off season for for guys like us, you know, off, baseball off season writers or what have you, is playing a little bit of matchmaker and finding out, you know, which team has uh, the, the quality prospects and the number of prospects to make a trade like this. You look at Houston and Alex Bregman and how good he was and the, the little bit of baseball that he played. For the Astros this past season, the Astros certainly have a deep-ish farm system and, and would be able to come up with, um, with, with some of the numbers necessary to make a trade for either one of those guys and, and an Alex Bregman who would come up and presumably play Major League Baseball and play impactful baseball right away. And I think that would be – I would imagine that that's what, something that's preferred in a, in a deal like this, the deal that we've kind of been wondering and theorizing about and the White Sox have somewhat been hinted at for a while now. It would be great to see a tangible return, an immediate tangible return in one of those trades, um, just because it would be right there for you. You know, it would be right there on opening day in April to be able to see the fruit of, of that move. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that if they don't get a guy, you know, if they do make this move, a move like this, if they don't get a guy that they're on that opening day roster, that it was a failure. That would be, that'd be, a, little, um, it'd be a little cold in judgment. Well, and, and speaking of opening day rosters, and let, let's assume they do make some moves. I got a sure. couple guys here I'd like to ask you about. Do, do you think that we'll see Carson Fulmer back on the opening day roster this season? You know, I think he's got a good chance, and I think that's completely going to be up to Carson Fulmer. I, I think the White Sox are ready to have him earn a spot. 
Um, I think even with, you know, let's say regardless of what your rotation looks like, you've got room for him to compete for a spot. Um, James Shields and the way he ended that last season and contract accepted uh, and, and option exercised from James, I, I think the White Sox should be doing themselves a disservice. And I, and I know they, they think this way too. They are all about the rapid promotion of prospects, especially if you earn it. Um, they're all about Carson Fulmer and still have uh, high expectations for him. And I think those are, are primarily uh, going to be in the starting rotation. So I think Carson Fulmer's fate um, has to do pretty much with, with how Carson Fulmer looks and, and accepts his role and how he's, uh, how he's ready to go. I know, I mean, you and I have both had a chance, Dave, to talk to Carson, and he is, I mean, listen, there's, there's nobody in that clubhouse who, who wants that more than, than Carson Fulmer does. He is a kid who has absolutely got his mind set on it and, uh, and desires it as much as anybody can. Now, uh, more pitching. Number one pick this past season, Zach sure. Birdie. Do you expect to see him on the opening day roster? And if so, where? Maybe not opening day. Uh, I, I think with Zach, you know, if he's from, from what I've been told and from what I, I've talked to some some scouting and, and development guys uh, with the Sox about Zach is that you know they they do think that he's going to pitch in the major leagues this next season as long as things. You know, health-wise, everything shakes out for or shakes out for Zach Birdie. Um, I expect him to pitch high-leverage situations out of the bullpen as soon as he does get to the White Sox. I, you look at that arsenal, Dave, and and the triple-digit fastball. There's just no reason um, if he's clicking to to not see what he's made of early on. Um, the White Sox have a have a thick history of doing that with with flamethrowers out of the bullpen. I mean, look no farther than uh, you know Bobby Jenks in 2005 coming up and and clocking out saves as soon as he got up to the big leagues. There's no fear um, in the White Sox organization about doing that with prospects who are ready to do it. I, maybe not opening day, and I would only say that because of perhaps some control issues with Zach Birdie. Um, but, again, when you're throwing, I mean, we saw this all throughout the playoffs, right? When you're throwing a heart, uh, you can sacrifice a little bit of control issue. Guys are still going to swing at that necktie fastball because it's coming in so hot. I, I, Zach Birdie's going to pitch in the big leagues. Um, in 17, I'd be shocked to see, to see it otherwise. Well, Connor, thank you for taking some time out of your Thanksgiving weekend and and your vacation to come back and uh, join your own show, actually. Absolutely, Dave. Absolutely appreciate the invite, and uh, and I appreciate you for, uh, for stepping in. Happy Thanksgiving to White Sox fans. We'll be back at it next Saturday. As Connor said, he'll be back next Saturday. My name is Dave Zaslowski. This is White Sox Weekly on WLS AM 890.